Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We're just going to cover the first three verses um, today and then go on from there. In verse 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. Now, when I start a book, I normally give you guys some background information to help you understand the context and get more out of it. The main purpose, what's the goal behind this book? Now, how many of you have actually heard of the story of Jonah and the fish or Jonah and the whale? Raise your hand. Almost all of us have heard this story, right? And a lot of people in the world have also heard it. They refer to it in movies sometimes, but many people that have heard of Jonah being eaten by a fish reject the book because it's almost unbelievable. They don't think it's historical. They actually believe that it's just a, a story written to communicate a truth, some hidden meaning. Some people believe it's just poetry or a poem or complete fiction. But what do you think? Do you think the book of Jonah is fact or fiction? And why do you believe that? How do you determine something is actually a fact that happened for certain many hundreds or even thousands of years ago? Well, you kind of need some evidence, right? You need possibly eyewitnesses. But we have something even better than that. And that brings me to my first kind of point. Jesus unmistakably regarded this book as a historical fact. Jesus, the Son of God, said that this book took place in history. In Luke chapter 11, verse 29 through 30, and also verse 32, it says, And while the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began saying, began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus basically was saying, hey, I'm greater than Jonah. And how you respond to my message is important. Just like how Nineveh responded to Jonah's message. Another time that Jesus referred to this book is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 40. Now it sounds similar, but I believe that these are two distinct uh, times he mentioned this. And he said, 
But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign, and no sign will be given to except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jonah, the book of Jonah, and him being swallowed by a whale, actually told about the resurrection. It was telling generations to come that Jesus was going to die and rise from the grave. And so our Lord Jesus puts his stamp of approval on this book, saying it's a fact. But something that you will hear growing up, when you go off to high school, when you go to college, people will tell you certain parts of the Bible aren't true. We were just talking with somebody recently that they believe the first, I think, 11 chapters of Genesis never happened. It's just poetry. They don't believe it's a fact. And so people will have these obscure ideas and they will say other books of the Bible don't exist or are not real, actually, should I say. And the, the books that are debated the most and have the most controversy are the ones Jesus quoted the most. And there's four of them. Deuteronomy. Jesus quoted more than any other book. Then you also have Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet, the last half of his book, is so specific in his prophecy. He prophesied about this King Cyrus 200 years before he was born. By name he mentioned him. And then he came to power and became king over the Medes and Persians. And people are like, oh, that's too specific. He probably wrote it after the fact. No, he didn't. Same with Daniel and his book and this book here also. See, the one who never lies and can always be trusted above anyone else, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, approved and said these books are fact. These are history. Another reason why we can trust this book is if God created the universe, why is it hard for us to believe that God can create a special fish to engulf a man? If you can believe God created the universe and you don't believe Jonah, then there's kind of something wrong with your thinking. You believe that God can keep the world suspended in space, nothing holding it up from the bottom or the top or any other sides, keeping it rotating around the sun in the perfect spot where we are not too close to burn up and not too far away from the sun where we would freeze over. Where our atmosphere is perfect for human life. God did that. How hard is it to believe that God created a fish to swallow a man? If you can believe that God created the world, you can believe in this also. This book is true. And it is only when we regard it as true that it can speak forcibly. So what you think about this book the story of Jonah will determine how it impacts you. So before we even move on, we have to understand, and you have to make a decision. Many of you love movies, right? 
How many of you guys love the Marvel films? I love Marvel movies, okay? Several of you, okay? You don't love the Marvel movies? Oh. Uh, okay, that's fine. But I love the Marvel movies. Uh, I grew up watching Spider-Man. Uh, Spider-Man was like my go-to character. I grew, grew up on the 90s cartoon that is on uh, Disney Plus now, um, classic. And I love watching all of them for the most part. Some of them I can't stand. But you know what movies impact me more than the Marvel movies? No, DC is terrible. <laughs> what impacts me more is movies that are based on historical events. What it says before the movie starts, based on a true story. Not inspired by a true story. Inspired kind of means like it could be true, it cannot be. But when it says it's based on a true story, that changes everything. And recently I've watched two movies on Hulu about uh, World War II and Nazis and how the Jews try to save their people from being executed by the Nazis in Hungary. And another time where uh, the Israeli government sent in spies to kidnap this Nazi soldier who uh, took on another identity because he was behind the plotting and the murdering of thousands upon millions of Jews. And these were actually historical events that took place. And they leave you almost breathless, like, wow, this actually took place. People were fighting for your lives, and we here get to be in an air-conditioned building, not worrying that much. So, but the same thing is true for books, and the same thing is true about this book. If you believe it is historical, it has a bigger impact. So, do you believe that this book is historical? Before we move on, I want you to think to yourself, do you think 100% true that this book actually happened. I can't tell you what you believe. You have to make that up for yourself. I personally believe that this book is historical. I'm not going to limit God and say, oh, he can create the universe, but he can't create a fish to swallow a man. God's can't be limited. So moving along, when did Jonah write, uh, exist and even possibly write this book? Well, probably around A.D. 75. Jonah prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II. Now here on the screen, you can see a graph. And in this graph, you can see the amount of word content here on the side and also the amount of years of ministry down here at the bottom. And Jonah existed and lived here in AD 75 around that time but his word content is small but yet his in his ministry was very impactful but kind of in an odd way so when i start teaching through a new book i love to ask some questions and one of the questions i like to ask is what is the purpose of this book why did God allow this book to be in the whole entire Bible out of possibly other letters that were written or events that took place? Why this book specifically? For two reasons. And both have to do with character. Number one, God's character. It reveals God's character, His mercy and His grace. Mercy is forgiveness Mercy is compassion. It reveals the heart of God. 
And grace is beyond that, actually. The second thing is, it reveals our own character. To see if our own character reflects God's mercy and gracious character. Or if it reflects that of Jonah the prophet. See, I believe God desires to make us, you and me, channels. Do you know what a channel is? A channel is like a hose. The hose is like nothing. But once it connects to the spout, the source of water, then it changes everything. And you can take that hose and direct the water wherever you want. He wants to make us vehicles of His mercy and grace where it flows through our life to the world around us. He doesn't want to just give us His mercy and grace and keep it to ourselves. He wants us to be like the disciples, like Paul, who went out and was used by God to spread that love, grace, and mercy to people that God deeply cares about. Also, this story is a historical picture of the Messiah, which means Jesus, his death and resurrection, and how he would go into the world and preach the gospel using us. Another question I'd like to ask is, what does it reveal about God? What does this book tell you about God? Because the whole entire Bible tells you about the heart of God. It tells you what he thinks. It tells you what he believes. It tells you how he sees things. And so what does this book say? Well, it says four things about God. God's sovereignty. Now, sovereignty is a biblical word that I'm going to define it as authority or his control. He controls everything. And this book reveals that. God, later on, will send a storm to Jonah. God has prepared a fish to swallow Jonah alive. Later on, God made a plant to grow up and bring shade to Jonah, meaning he has control of everything going on around us. So even when we think God is in control, he is actually in control. Now, we wonder why he allows certain things. And that's a different question for a different time. The second thing is God's determination. See, God is determined that people would get saved. God is determined that his gospel message will go forth. And he wants to do that. It also reveals his boundless mercy, not only towards his people, but towards all people. And last, but I think most importantly, is God's love for all people. See, God doesn't just love Christians. God doesn't just love the nation of Israel. God doesn't only love specific individuals. He loves all people. He's concerned about His people, Israel, and the church, and everyone. He's interested in all nations, in every tribe, every language, wherever a human may be. He is interested in them because God loves them and does not want to destroy them. Now that we have a background of what takes place in this book, look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1 says, 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. In other words, a message from God came directly to Jonah. Jonah was a prophet, which means a special messenger of the Lord, and he spoke on the Lord's behalf. His name means dove, and he was a servant of the Lord. His hometown was in Gath Hefer, which was located in the tribe of Zebulun, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And like I said earlier, he lived during the time of Jeroboam II, who was the king of the northern kingdom. And the prophet came and predicted something, that Israel's boundaries would expand under his rule and reign. And it actually came true in 2, Corinth, sorry, 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 25. Why do I say that? Because Jonah had a firsthand experience of God's promises coming true, what he said happened, and... God's, he had firsthand experience of God's mercy. He knew that. He knew God was merciful to a stubborn, rebellious people that Israel was. And that's important to hold on as we continue to study this book. Verse 2, we see the message that God gives Jonah. He says, arise. That means to get up, to stand up, to endure, to stay fixed. He says, get up. Now, my first question is, all right, what was Jonah doing before this moment? You think he was fishing? That's a good conclusion. I didn't even think about that. He could have been fishing. He could have been watching TV. He could have been playing video games. Ooh, he could have been sitting on the beach, just like getting his tan on. Um, I actually went to the beach Friday. What was Jonah doing? We don't know at this moment. But I love that it doesn't say, because no matter what he was doing, he was given a message. And God says, get off your butts, and I want you to go somewhere. I want you to go. I want you to travel to Nineveh, which is this location. And you can see this on the map. It's in the uh, eastern part of the world, away from Israel. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. So Assyria ruled during this time. And the Assyrian Empire was a world empire for about 300 years. I don't even think the United States has been around for 300 years. Assyria has ruled that long. Nevertheless, actually, sorry, Nineveh sat on the east bank of the Tigris River and about 500 miles northeast of Israel. This was a beautiful city. Nineveh was mentioned 19 times in Scripture, mostly here in another prophet. But something to note is Assyria was Israel's enemy, which means they were Jonah's enemy. And God is telling Jonah, I want you to go to your enemies and talk to them. Imagine if the Lord told us, hey, I want you to go to your enemy. And you're like, which one? <laughs> I got several. Some of them are my siblings. Some of them might be my parents, my uh, friends. Which enemy? But God is telling Jonah to go to his enemies. 
And God calls the city of Nineveh that great city. The word great is used 13 times in these four chapters. And it's used to describe the city of Nineveh because of how huge it was. It was so large that it took three days' journey just to cross it and had over 120,000 infants or small children. That's a lot of babies, right? There was a lot of people in Nineveh. This word great is also used to describe a wind storm that comes and the fish that would swallow Jonah. Now God tells Jonah where to go. Now he tells them what to do. He says, I want you to cry out against the wickedness of this city because it's come up before me. It's gotten God's attention. God was always aware of it, but he goes, now I can't stand it. I want to do something about it. What was the wickedness? What did the Assyrians do? What is the evil that God is referring to? Well, another prophet by the name of Nehum a minor prophet, later on, several, I think, uh, years later, possibly a hundred years later, came to give Nineveh another message of destruction. And this is what he says in Nehum chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. I don't have it on the screen, but I want you to listen to the words he used. Woe, you bloody city! It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victims never depart. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of wheels, the galloping of horses and the chattering of chariots. Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses because of the multitude of harlots of the seductive harlot, the misery of the sorcerers who sell nations through their harlot trees and families through their sorcery. To unpack that, basically, this was an evil, messed up, wicked nation. Having witchcraft, And maybe you don't think that's a big deal, but a lot of demonic stuff is involved with witchcraft. Lying, robberies, harlotry. He says there's so many corpses, they stumble over the dead bodies. See, the army of Syria, or Assyria, was wicked. Now, I tried to do some research, and I'm going to do some more research. And if I'm wrong, I'll tell you next week. (laughs) But I've heard, if I remember, when I first studied this book a couple years ago, that the Assyrian army, you know what they would do to their victims and to the towns they conquered? What? You're right. They would take off, they would chop people's heads off and put spikes around the city and put their heads on the spikes. And you see these heads decaying. Not only that, they would take knives and skin people alive, pulling off their flesh like filleting a fish. They would also take them and tie their ankle, I believe, and drag them behind chariots until they died. 
Now, can you understand why God says, hey, I want you to go and shout against their wickedness, the evil that they've done. What does Jonah do? Verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. He ran away. This is complete contrast to Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah the prophet had a vision of God on the throne, high and lifted up. He saw these seraphim, which are angels, and they flew with two wings. With two wings, they covered their feet, and with two, they covered their face. And they're shouting out, holy, holy, holy. And their praise and worship was so loud, it shook the whole entire temple. And then the voice from the throne says, who shall we send? And Isaiah's like, hey, send me. Sign me up. I'm down to go. Wherever, whenever, I'll do it. I'm going to go. You know what Jonah says? No way, Jose. Peace out. I'm leaving. I'm not going to do this. And actually, I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And that's actually what takes place because Tarsus is, we actually don't know where Tarsus is on a map, but it was probably located in uh, the Mediterranean on the west side. So somewhere probably around in this direction. Complete opposite direction. Nineveh is in the east, but he went to the west. And so he went in the opposite way. This raises the question, why? Why did Jonah run? You think he's scared? Too good for them, possibly? Okay. Anybody else have a different conclusion or idea? See, why did Jonah run? Was it because it was a too difficult of a mission? Oh, it's a long journey. Three days to walk through that city, and I got to do that the whole time? Whew, that's too difficult. No. Was it because it was too dangerous? No. So what's the reason he didn't go? What was the motive behind him running away? Well, turn over one page to chapter 4, verse 2. Later on, we see this, and we'll unpack this later on. But it's good to know. In verse 2, it says, So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, as or was not this what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarsus. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. In other words, he knew that God was gracious. And that God was not sending him to Nineveh to announce not only a coming judgment, but he sent Jonah to Nineveh so that they might repent. So that they might repent. Now we have to be careful because we can view the Assyrians as being super wicked and evil and us being more holy or better. No, God says everyone is equal. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We are not better than them. Maybe we haven't done as many bad things as they did, but one sin 
sends us to hell. And so be careful because Jonah had this attitude. He goes, those are my enemies. I don't want to see them in heaven. I want to see them in hell is basically what he was saying. And this hatred that came from the heart of Jonah is so ugly, so nasty, but it can come from our hearts too if we're not careful. If we don't submit and surrender to the Lord. Do you think Jonah could really outrun the presence of God? What do you guys think? No, why not? You're right. God is everywhere. And that's what Psalm 139 verses 7 through 10 says. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. See, I like to think of God this is a fancy word, omnipresent. It's part of who God is. He mean, that means he's everywhere all at the same time. Now, to wrap your mind around this, when we get to heaven, you'd never want to play hide-and-seek with God. It's no fun, okay? When God says, turns his back and goes, all right, Josh, I'm going to count to 10, and I go running off, every location I pick, he's going to be like, oh, I already taken it. I'm here. I go to another location. Oh, hey, Josh, I'm here again. God, sorry. And running to another spot to hide again, he goes, oh, now I'm here. Every spot you choose, God is already at. And he's also at the spot you left. Not only that, he's with you going to those other spots. You can't escape God. Jonah couldn't escape God, and neither can we. So it's kind of surprising that Jonah, a prophet, thinks he can escape God. And also, he doesn't consider the consequences of running away from the Lord. And most people never consider the consequences. When running away from God, they only think about what they're missing, that the world has to offer. And they rather choose the things in the world and the temporary pleasures than rather than choosing the love and grace of God. The rest of verse 3 says, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarsus. And he paid the fare and went down into the boat to go with them to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. Twice it says he's running from God or fleeing from his presence. And the word down is mentioned two times here, but five times in chapter 1. Why is that important? Because it's always that way when a person runs from the presence of the Lord. The way of the Lord is up. Consequently, any other way that is away from God is down. So every step we take away from the Lord, it's a way down. We're going down and further down and further down. And you will see Jonah. He goes from Israel down to Joppa to get into a boat. He goes down into the bottom of the boat. And he goes even further down into the bottom of the sea in the belly of a whale. Because that's where our actions will lead us when we are running from the Lord. And that's why I want to encourage you, do the opposite. There are stories in Scripture to tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. 
this story here tells us that we shouldn't be like Jonah. Run to God. Don't run away from him. Not only that, Jonah was determined to get away. He was willing to pay money. He goes, how much? hundred bucks? I'll take a hundred bucks. I do not want to go to Nineveh. I do not want to follow the Lord. I will pay any price to get away. When you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you're going. and You will always pay your own fee. Someone said that. See, when you're running from the Lord and you're trying to seek to satisfy yourself, through pleasure, find a meaning, whatever it may be, and if it's not in the Lord, you're going to be always empty. There's going to be real no satisfaction. On the other hand, when you go the Lord's way, you will always get to where you are going, and He pays the fare. See, when you go God's way, He's going to lead you, and you're going to see the miraculous things take place. You're going to see him part seas. You're going to see him save people. You're going to see him use you and speak to others to comfort somebody in pain. Now, how does all this apply to us? How does these three verses apply to our lives? How should we respond? Well, I think there are many similarities between Jonah's story and our own personal individual stories. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I want you to think for a quick second. How many of you call yourselves a Christian? If you were not a Christian this morning, God desires that you would be saved first and foremost and have a relationship with Him. If you are a Christian, then you and I have a mission from the Lord. He has given you and I specific instructions that we are to do, to live out, which shows me that God desires to use us. He has a purpose for each and every one of us, whether we are aware of it or not. He has something He wants to do with our lives, with our talents. So if you're creative, and you're that type of person that loves to create and you brainstorm and you come up with all these great ideas, God wants to use your creativity. If you are very skilled in math, which I am not, <laughs> and you are very good and it just clicks and it makes sense, God wants to use that. He wants to use every part of us if we are willing and give to Him and surrender to Him. And not only in the future, because we think, oh, God's going to use me in the future, right? Later down the road when I get into high school, or when I get into college, or when I get married, or when I have kids. No, that's not true. God wants to use you right here, right now. In this room, as soon as you walk out of these doors, tomorrow, wherever you may be, God desires to use you. And the first thing we can see even and apply to our lives is even in Jonah's message here, the word arise. That word arise, he says, get up. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Therefore, he says, awake you who sleep and arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. See, when we respond to God's voice, he will give us the light to shine and the message to share. 
This light is not from us. It's from God. We are a mirror. We are like the moon, just reflecting the sun to the dark world around us. We have a message of hope. I'm reminded of, uh, it hasn't come out yet, but I'll give you a spoiler. We're going to be doing a missions week for high school and junior high. In other words, we're gonna, it's going to be on YouTube and uh, Instagram, and we're trying to encourage everyone to do missions. And missions is not only going abroad to another country, but it's wherever and whenever you are at. And we interviewed Gary Yamamoto, and at the end of his uh, interview, he read a poem that I was like, dang, that was deep and heavy. And it's by an unknown author, and I'm going to butcher it, but when it comes out, please watch it. Because he says, how can I call you friend is the title. And it's about somebody that doesn't know the Lord getting, or someone that doesn't know the Lord dying standing before God's throne and seeing that friend. He goes, wait a second. You knew the answers to eternal life. You knew I was going to die and go to hell. You knew all the time and you never said anything. You never once spoke up and said I was going to go to a place for all of eternity. He goes, now I will not call you friend because a friend would have said something to me. And that is the truth. God wants to use us. The second thing God told Jonah to do was to go and to preach. Two things we are told in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is called the Great Commission. This, in other words, is every Christian's responsibility to carry out. If you call yourself a Christian, that means you ought to be living this out. To go and share the gospel. To disciple somebody. If you have younger siblings, pour into them. Pray with them. Encourage them. If you have an older sibling, it's harder to do that with your older siblings, right? But be an example. It was funny, we were messing around uh, after first service here, and we were cleaning the rooms. And one of the girls was, uh, was in junior high, was staying behind, but her sister's from high school. So she came in and says, all right, we're leaving. And I was like, oh, I need help cleaning. Would you guys be down to help? And the older sister's like, nah, I'm out. And the younger sister's like, I'm down to help. And I was like, yes, that's right. Be an example to your older sibling and show them what serving is like. And sometimes we need that. Even me, as a minister, I'm encouraged by what I see in you guys. I watch you guys, which kind of sounds creepy, but I observe and see how you interact with people. When we went to uh, the Pomona Outreach, I watched some of you guys serve, whether it was plating food or handing uh, clothes or food to homeless people. And this one guy that walked up, man, he stunk. Literally, from like the wall, you can smell him. And I was like, oh, Lord. And the girl, the, one of the junior higher girls, just handed him a plate, smiled, and said, God bless you. Like the smell never fazed her. And that encouraged me because I was like, I was like, all right, I'm going to walk away for a quick second. <laughs> and so you guys encourage me. We're called to go. 
Where are we called to go? Well, maybe in the future you are called to go to a specific location. Is there any place that you guys would love to like be the rest of your life? What? Dodger Stadium? Just like that your home? <laughs> That's funny. Marcus Pedroza just bought Dodger Stadium and he put his house in the middle and that's it. I don't know about you, but I like, I want to go to New, New Zealand. I would love to go there on vacation one day, but I don't know if I would love to stay there. Where about you? Uh, Arizona. Arizona? You want to go to Arizona? My brother lives out there and it's like 120 right now. I'm like, no way. Texas? Oh, that's right. You're from Texas. No. No? Okay, that's right. Okay. So, God might call you to a specific location and to a specific people. Maybe he has called you to a new school. And you and your parents have already been talking about a new school and being enrolled in that school. And you're kind of like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. But your parents are like kind of nagging you like, listen, this is what's going to take place. Either we're going to homeschool you or you're going to go to this school or whatever it may be. Or maybe you want to go to a new school, but your parents are saying, stay at this old school. See, wherever you are at as a student in junior high, you are called to follow your parents' lead. So if your parents go and move to a new city, you got to go with them. You can't be like, uh, I'm going to stay in this house. You guys can buy another house. That's not going to work. You go where they go. And if you have to get enrolled in a new student, that is got part of God's plan and purposes. So be praying for your parents that God would guide them and that they would be willing and listening to his voice. But when you go off into high school and when you go into junior high, then the responsibility falls on you. Did I say high school and junior high? High school or junior high, high school and college. The responsibility is going to start falling on you for you to listen to God's voice and say, Lord, where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to talk to? So wherever we go, whether it's to our family's house, to get our haircuts, to the beach, we are to be ready and willing to share the gospel and the love of Jesus. Just the other day, I had to get my haircut the other day, and you're like, Josh, you're bald. I still have to get my haircut, okay? Leave me alone. But my barber, the guy used to come here to church, and he would cut all the guy's hairs at, who were on staff at church. Yeah, he cut it in the hallway. He's cut it in the junior high room before. And so he unfortunately couldn't cut our hair anymore. And I was like, dude, I, I just need to cut my hair. I don't care where I go. So I called one place, Supercuts, scheduled an appointment, and I was like, I'm going. Now, sitting in a barber chair or a salon, it's always awkward when it's a stranger cutting your hair. Wouldn't you agree? You're like, I don't know this person. Am I supposed to make conversation? Should I just sit here and say nothing? Wait, they're asking me questions. What? Not always. Right, so when it's friends, it's more relaxing. But see, I've always had like bad experiences with barbers. One time, um, I got my hair cut from a lady when I was younger, and I had a sensitive nose. She smoked a pack of cigarettes probably before cutting my hair. Came in, she threw wintergreen in her mouth. Now, I'm allergic to wintergreen. So as she's cutting my hair, I'm like almost gonna vomit because I'm smelling her cigarette smoke and the lister or uh, the wintergreen and I'm like afterwards I felt like nauseous and sick to my stomach so I haven't had good experiences with barbers and people cutting my hair but I went to get my hair cut this uh, Tuesday night last week yes and I sat down I don't know this lady she's cutting my hair with a mask on so I'm like oh how's business like do you guys have to do any like thing making small talk and she goes what do you do for a living 
And when anybody asks me what I do for a living, I'm like, oh, this conversation is going to get awkward because I always say I'm a youth minister. I'm a youth pastor. And they're like, oh, that's interesting. They're like totally, like literally the fastest way to kill a conversation is just to say that. That's why sometimes I'll say, oh, I'm a teacher. And they're like, oh, really? What grade do you teach? Oh, I teach junior high. And then when they ask what subject, I was like, oh, I teach the Bible. And they're like, oh, you're a pastor. Um, so depending on how it goes, I'll play it differently. And so I just started talking with this lady. And then later on, I asked, like, so do you go to church? She goes, yeah, but right now I work Sundays. And me and my boyfriend, we try to go to his mom's church or my mom's church sometimes. And we don't get to go all the time. And... So I said, yeah, I encourage you, go to church. Like, uh, we have a church down the street uh, here on Pipeline in Philadelphia. Come by, we have service on Sundays and Wednesday nights if you can't make it on Sunday morning. And she goes, oh, okay, I'll, I'll try. But I could tell in the midst of the conversation, she's sleeping with her boyfriend. They're living together and she's living in sin. So she doesn't want the Lord right now. But my job is still to share the love of Jesus with her and encourage her like you know what God still wants you God still wants to speak to you come as you are come with your sin I'm not going to tell her right there and then oh you're in sin you need to stop sleeping with your boyfriend and you need to get right with Jesus no that's not my job to convict that's the Holy Spirit's job to work on her heart and so I simply invited her planted a seed and we'll see what comes of it so wherever we go we are called to preach, to preach. What does that mean? To share the gospel. What does that look like? Well, it looks different in every situation with every person. So if you're at the barber shop, that looks completely different because you kind of have a captivated audience. Then with your family member and you're like, oh, like I really don't want to share with them, but I feel like I should. So it makes it a little more interesting or a friend. Every situation and every person is different. And that's why it's important for us to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, that He would guide us and teach us what to speak at the right moment. But the first step is being obedient, responding to the call and the command to rise and to go. See, Jonah went to preach against their wickedness and their evil actions. We are not called to say, point out people like, oh, you're in sin, you're doing this, you're doing that. We are called to do it in a different way, to share the hope that Jesus can transform us from the inside out. And he wants us saved to just come as we are and to repent of our sins. God will work on us. If we hear God's call in the voice of the Lord speaking to us and we choose not to follow it, that's called being disobedient or running from God's purpose and plan for your life. So my question is, what, what are you running from? Are you like Jonah and you're running from something that God wants you to do? Are you running from your past and the things that took place to you? Are you running possibly from your future? Are you running from what God wants you to do? And why are you running? What are the reasons? Is it because it's too difficult to face? Is it because it's hard? Is it because it's dangerous? 
or you're afraid, listen, things are always going to be difficult. Trying new things is difficult. Going down a new path is difficult. There's always going to be danger or the possibility of danger. Getting into a car, there's a possibility that you're going to get into a car crash. That's actually more likely than getting into a plane and the plane crashing. The possibility, the probabilities of that is astronomical. There's always danger. There's always something to fear too. There's always something to fear like, oh, what if they respond this way? What if I say this and they get offended and they start cussing me out or doing something? We can make excuse after excuse because there's always excuses for us to make. And I've made a lot of them and many of them. But will we rise and overcome those difficulties, dangers, fears, and excuses? See, in the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, God wrote to the seven churches and he gave each of them a promise. He goes, if you overcome, I will give you new robes. If you overcome, your name will be written in the book of the Lamb of Life. If you overcome, you will have a new name in heaven. I encourage you, read over those two chapters and look at every time it says overcome, overcome, overcome. God has called us as men and women to be overcomers, to overcome our fears our struggles, our excuses, to die to ourselves and live for the Lord. I'll leave you with this one final thing. Jonah responded to God's message and ran in disobedience. How will you respond to God's message? Are you going to run away or are you going to run to the Lord?